So this morning we're going to complete what we started like a month ago. It was supposed to be completed back in September before all of the traveling and different uh, things happened, but, but in the providence of God that didn't happen. So this morning I'm going to complete chapter 8, Christ the Mediator. And this morning I'm going to deal with paragraphs 4 to 10. Last time we dealt with paragraphs 1 to 3, Christ's ordination, paragraph 1, and his incarnation, paragraph 2, and then his qualification for his office and work in paragraph 3. So I put that all under the heading of the work of Christ, up to the person of Christ, and now today we're going to consider the work of Christ in paragraphs 4 uh, through 8, and, and then the offices of Christ in which he undertakes his work in paragraphs 9 and 10. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we study the confession of faith this morning. Father, thank you once again for this wonderful day of rest and worship. Thank you for the rich heritage that we have in the 1689 Confession of Faith. We pray as we study what our forefathers in the faith wrote about the person and especially the work and offices of your beloved Son. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come and shine light on what they wrote and that we would be enlightened and that we would be blessed and benefited and that you would be glorified as we follow them as they followed you and your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first of all, they have an overview of Christ's work in paragraph 4. And then in paragraphs 5 through 7, they address and present Christ's work accomplished in his humiliation. And then thirdly, in paragraph 8, Christ's work that he does presently in his exaltation and then paragraphs 9 and 10, which come from a different source. Paragraphs 9 and 10 were not derived from the Westminster Confession or the Savoy Declaration. There is no equivalent of paragraphs 9 and 10 in the Westminster and Savoy documents. Rather, paragraphs 9 and 10 come from the First London Confession of Faith. They're drawn directly from the First Baptist London Confession. So once again, we have an example of how our forefathers combined and put together what the Presbyterians and the Baptists of the previous generation had written in their various and distinct documents. Here, they are clearly combined. So, first of all, let's look then at paragraph uh, 4, which gives us an overview of the work of Christ. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which, that he might discharge, he was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified, 
and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. And they have many scripture references to support this. They collate the historical events of Christ's life into the categories of humiliation and exaltation. In his humiliation, there is his active obedience. He was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And Matthew 3.15, they also appeal to this. But Jesus answering, that is to John the Baptist, said to him, Suffer it now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then they also feature his passive obedience, He underwent the punishment due to us, enduring the most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified, yet saw no corruption. We read in Galatians 3.13, they appeal to that text. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned everyone to his own way. And Jehovah has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf. And Matthew 26, 37 and 38, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and sore troubled. Then he says to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even to death. And Luke 22, 44, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And Matthew 27, 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then again, Acts 13, 37, but he whom God raised saw no corruption. Now those are the passages that they cite to support what they said about Christ's work in his humiliation. Then also they relate in their overview the exaltation of Christ First, in his resurrection, ascension, and session, where he's making intercession. And then in his second coming, to judge men and angels. They appeal to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. I delivered to you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he has been raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then they appealed to John 20, 25 and 27. 
where Thomas and the other disciples see the risen Christ. And then his ascension, Mark 16, 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, which also describes the ascension of Christ. And again, Romans 8, 34. Who was he that condemns? It is Christ Jesus that died, yes, rather, that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then again, Hebrews 9.24, For Christ entered not into the holy place made with hands, like into pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. So that Christ was literally raised from the dead, bodily ascended to heaven, seated at God's right hand in glory on the throne of God, and ever lives there in his resurrection body, in resurrection glory, to make intercession for his people. That's where he is right now. But that's not where he's going to remain forever. They also state clearly that he will return to earth, his second coming. And when he comes, he is coming back to judge men and angels. Acts 10 and verse 42. And he charged us to preach to the people and to testify that this is he who was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And Romans 14, 9 and 10. For to this end Christ also died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And first and second Peter two four, for if God spared not the angels when they sinned, committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved to judgment. So Christ is returning. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. He's coming uh, to have all men and angels, all humans and angels stand before him to receive judgment. Now then that's the overview in paragraph four. They give an overview of Christ's work and his humiliation and exaltation. And then in paragraphs 5, 6, and 7, they focus on the work that Christ accomplished in his humiliation when he was here on the earth. And they open up the distinguishing features of his redemptive work in paragraph 5. And then the retroactive application of his redemptive work in paragraph 6 and the mysterious portrayal of his redemptive work in paragraph 7. So you have the distinguishing features of the work that he accomplished, the redemption that he accomplished when he was here. And then it's retroactive application and then its mysterious description, what's called the communion of idioms. All right, first of all, uh, the distinguishing features, paragraph 5. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom 
the Father has given to him. Now they unfold the identity of his redemptive work, the finality of his redemptive work, the efficacy of his redemptive work, and the beneficiaries or particularity of his redemptive work. First of all, the identity of his redemptive work, what Paul calls the righteousness of God, the virtue in God's eyes that stems from and grows from the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, the sinless obedience of Christ in his life and death. What they refer to here as his perfect obedience and sacrificed of himself, Christ's saving merit, Christ's saving merit accrues from his active obedience to the law in his perfect life and from his passive obedience to God's will in his atoning death. The, that's the identity of his redemptive work. Then the finality of his redemptive work, which he, through the eternal spirit, offered up to God once for all. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. And then the efficacy or effectiveness of his redemptive work, that he, quote, has fully satisfied the justice of God, that he has procured reconciliation, and that he has purchased an everlasting inheritance. His work is effective. He accomplished, in fact, what he intended to do. Hebrews 10.14, for by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Romans 3.25 and 26, whom God set forth to be propitiation through faith in his blood to show his righteousness, etc., that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus. And then the last thing they talk about, is the particularity, or the they identify the beneficiaries. Who, for whom did he do this? For all those whom the Father has given to him. John 17, 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he should give eternal life. And they also appeal to Hebrews 9. So that, those are the distinguishing features, the identity, finality, efficacy, and particularity, or the beneficiaries of Christ's redemptive work. Then they also uh, highlight the retroactive application in paragraph 6. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ, until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. So they're talking about what I call retroactive application. Although the price of redemption wasn't actually in history, space, and time paid until the incarnation when Christ lived and died, but the benefit of what Christ did was applied before he did it. That's what they're saying, and that's clearly true. So all of those that have ever been redeemed from Abel onward have always been redeemed on the ground of what Christ did, even before he did it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, And did all drink of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come to you. And, and there are others, uh, the book of the Lamb that has been slain, that they appeal to Revelation 13, 8, Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Romans 3, 25 and 26 that he showed his righteousness because of his forbearance and passing over the sins done aforetime, that what Christ did in the propitiation that Christ made is the ground for what God did before Christ did it and applying redemption and saving by grace those who believed in Christ and in the promise of God even before he came to earth. Quite amazing, isn't it? God's remarkable plan. And then they, the last thing that they say about his redemptive work is the mysterious way that it's portrayed. And they, they highlight what has been called by theologians the communion of idioms in paragraph 7. They say this, Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, that is, human and divine, each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that is, there's one person, God the Son, who has both a human nature and the divine nature. A human nature, he has a true human body and a true human soul, yet he's only one person, yet he has the nature of the supreme being because he is the supreme being. And there's only one divine nature and it is the nature, the divine nature of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And yet only one of those persons, God the Son, took to himself a true human body and a true human soul and there's only one person. There's not the human Jesus and the divine word, the divine Son. There's only one person, God the Son, who has a human body and a human soul and yet also has a divine nature. So that that's the reality of the incarnation that they laid out in paragraph 2. Now, there are mysteries associated with the way the Bible describes the work of Christ in the light of this reality of the incarnation. And here's what they're saying. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, human and divine. Each nature, human and divine, doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, 
That which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So why do you need to know that? Now, why don't the theologians just deal with this and leave the people alone? Why do we have to bother you with stuff like this? Well, because the Bible bothers you people with stuff like this. Well, how does the Bible bother you people with stuff like this? In John 3.13, it bothers you when it says, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven. Son of Man. So there's the person, God the Son, denominated, or spoken of, or named, or addressed and identified, denominated, in terms of his human nature, son of man. And yet, what is attributed to that person is not true of his human nature, which was on earth, but was true of his divine nature, which is everywhere always. Even the son of man, who is in heaven. So that is the communication of idioms. And the Bible does it again. It bothers you with it again. Where? Acts 20, 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to feed the church of God or the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. The blood of God. God doesn't have blood because God doesn't have a body. So here's the person. God the Son. The Lord. The supreme being denominated in terms of his divine nature, the church of God, the church of the Lord, which he, God, purchased with his own blood. Blood is one of the attributes of his human nature because he has a human body. God incarnate has a human body, and that human body has blood. And yet the person is called God. So sometimes in Scripture, that which is proper to one nature, his human nature, blood, is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person, God the Son, denominated by the other nature, by his divine nature, God or the Lord. That's the communion of idiots. So that's why you have this striking statement. The Son of Man, who is in heaven, and the Church of God or the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, that's the mysterious way in which Christ's redemptive work is sometimes portrayed in Scripture. So you have this, this overview or the distinguishing features of his redemptive work that he accomplished in his humiliation. Its identity, finality, efficacy, and particularity that is the beneficiaries of those God has given to him. And then you have these things associated with it. It's a retroactive application that what he did in history was applied before he did it. And this mysterious description of it, this communion of idiom. And then in paragraph 8 that which one? Oh, sorry. John 3.13. All right, then in paragraph 8, they focus on the work of Christ in his exaltation. Paragraph 8, they focus on the work of Christ in his exaltation. And in his exaltation, this is what they say. 
to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption. He does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. So, they give an overview of Christ's present work. Then they identify specific features of his present work. And finally, they mention and define the motive for his present work. Now, the general overview of the work of Christ in his exaltation to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. Redemption accomplished and applied. Redemption communicated. Its beneficiaries are to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption. Its efficacy, he does certainly and effectually, and its substance apply and communicate the same. That very redemption which he accomplished is certainly and effectually applied and communicated to all those for whom he accomplished it. John 6.37 All that which the Father gives me will come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. John 10.15 and 16 Even as the Father knows me, Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will And then, for if while we were enemies, Romans 5 10, we were reconciled to God with the death of the Son. It is And then, six specific features. Second, conversion, uniting them to himself by his spirit. Thirdly, illumination, revealing to them, in and by his word, the mystery of salvation. Fourthly, exhortation persuading them to believe and obey. Fifthly, regulation, governing their hearts by his word and spirit. 
and sixth, protection, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such a manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. So what is the work that Christ is doing now in his exaltation? His work is intercession, conversion, illumination, exhortation, regulation, protection. That's what he's doing. He's doing that for everyone for whom he accomplished redemption. And they appeal to many passages to support this. They appeal to John 17, 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. John 17, 6. I manifested your name to them, unto the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now, if, if Ephesians 1, 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. 1 John 5, 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in the Son of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 9, 14, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and so be the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he's not And again, Psalm 110.1, speaking of Christ and his exaltation, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And 1 Corinthians 15.25 and 26, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so these are the texts that they cite to support the present work of Christ, interceding, converting, illuminating, exhorting, regulating, and protecting his people that God has given to him. Isn't that wonderful to think about that, what Christ is doing right now for his people? And then what's the motive for this? And all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. And they appeal to Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Why does he pray for us and convert us and give us light and exhort us and regulate us and protect us? What is he doing all this for? Did we earn this or merit this? No, it's all of grace. It's grace from beginning to end. Grace that provided redemption. Grace that applies it. Grace has brought us safe this far. And grace will bring us home. So that's what they say about the work of Christ in his humiliation and exaltation. They give an overview of his work. And then they open up his work and his humiliation and then his work in his exaltation. Now, these last two paragraphs, as I say, don't come from the Westminster Confession at all, but they actually come from Articles 13 and 14 of the First London Confession. And they put them here at the end because they wanted to express 
their unity and identification both with the Baptists and with the Presbyterians and Congregationalists of the previous generation. So in paragraphs 9 and 10, they open up and present the offices of Christ. And first of all, in paragraph 9, they talk about the uniqueness of his offices. And then in paragraph 10, the necessity for his offices. All right, first of all, the uniqueness. This, as I say, comes from the first London Confession, uh, Article 13. This office of mediator between God and man, paragraph 9, is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to anyone else. And they appeal, or, or to any others, what they literally wrote. And they appeal to 1 Timothy 2.5. There's only one mediator between God and man, himself man, Christ Jesus. And then they talk about the necessity of Christ's offices. This number and order of offices is necessary. For, in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. And, in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And, in respect of our averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly Kingdom. And now, to support this, the need of his prophetic office, they appeal to John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time, his only begotten Son, he has declared him. And Colossians 1.21, that we were in the past alienated in our evil works, but we were reconciled to God through Christ. And Galatians 5.17, about the power of our remaining corruption. And the purpose and ministry of the Holy Spirit in John 16.8, to convict the world in respect of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And in Luke 1.74 and 75, Christ's kingly office, to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before God all our days. So that's basically what I wanted to present to you about our confession of faith and how it sets forth the work and offices of Christ in paragraphs 4 through 10. So do you have any questions or comments on what we looked at this morning?